Hello, I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the LSA U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. On the 14th of October, 2019, the U.S. Center hosted Professor Theda Scotchpole, Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University, for the event, Donald Trump and the Roots of Republican Extremism in the U.S. At the packed-out event, Professor Scotchpole discussed how the Republican Party has changed over the last two decades through the influences of ultra-free market fundamentalism and popularly rooted ethno-nationalist resentment. Well, first of all, welcome this evening. Uh, and, you know, I want to welcome everyone to the LSC. Um, my name is, is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor of, um, in the International Relations Department here and director um, of uh, the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting um, tonight's lecture. It's part of the Phelan uh, Family Lecture Series, which we launched this year. It's been made, made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy uh, Phelan Foundation. So it's a great pleasure to introduce tonight's uh, speaker, uh, Professor Theda Scotchpool, the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. She's known to many of us in the room here uh, through her seminal research on social revolutions, on welfare, on political trust, and I think as well her deep commitment uh, to publicly engaged scholarship through the Scholar Strategy Network, which she um, co-founded former dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard and director of Harvard's uh, Center for American Politics. Um, Professor Scotchpole has served as president of the American Political Science Association uh, and the Social Science History Association, and she's an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, and the National Academy of Sciences. Um, her body of scholarship includes... Well, I know it's over a dozen books. I actually had trouble counting, um, including such highly acclaimed works as States and Social Revolutions, Protecting Soldiers and Mothers, Social Revolutions in the Modern World, Inequality in American Democracy, The Transformation of American Politics with uh, Paul Pearson, Inequality in American Democracy with Larry Jacobs. And the Tea Party and the Remaking of American Conservatism with Vanessa um, Williamson in dozens of articles and chapters and edited volumes. Her writings are widely cited. They've won numerous prestigious awards and prizes, including the American Political Science Association's Woodrow Wilson Award, the American Sociological Association's Oliver Cromwell Cox Award, the American Political Science Association's J. David Greenstone Prize. I think he won that twice, among many others. It is here tonight with her husband, Bill, um, and we're very pleased to welcome both of them. And we look forward to getting her thoughts about, well, contemporary developments in the United <laughs> States. So there's a lot going on. Um, the title kind of says it all. Uh, what um, After the lecture... Um, I will do, we'll open it up to, uh, to questions and I'll do my level best to get in as many questions as possible, uh, both in this room and in the overflow room. Um, for those of you on Twitter, the suggested hashtag, is it up there? Yes. 
LSEUS Scotch Poll. Finally, I'd ask you to put your phones on silent if you haven't already done so. And with that, please join me in giving Professor Scotch Poll a warm LSE welcome. Well, thank you, Peter. You know, it's always such a pleasure uh, to visit London and uh, the mother country, as it were. And, you know, I'm here to report that, uh, and I'll talk about this tonight, uh, the current president of the United States and about a third of our citizens have decided that that revolution that happened 225 years ago against monarchy, uh, they don't really mean it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the, you can hear, if you listen quietly, you can hear the ghost of King George III saying, now you tell me. <laughs> so uh, my topic tonight is Republican Party extremism in the United States. So here's my question for tonight, uh, and I hit at the answer I'm going to offer. There's a lot of debate uh, in the last few years about, about the leading threat to U.S. democracy. Um, Russian interference in American elections, that is uh, an answer that many have pursued. Uh, President Trump's personal pathologies, those are on display every day. Uh, citizen cynicism and withdrawal, which is always a danger, uh, particularly in the United States where many people routinely do not vote. But the answer that I'm going to offer tonight is that even if all three of the above are factors in the current danger that American democratic institutions as well as uh, liberal policies find themselves in, my answer is Republican Party extremism. Uh, the U.S. is a two-party system, and when one um, set of extreme tendencies captures one of the two major parties, that's happened on both sides at various times. Um, they have greater potency than even in a multi-party uh, parliamentary system. So uh, the Republican Party has recently been uh, increasingly willing to accept um, executive abuses, to subvert uh, democratic participation by limiting voting rights and access, and uh, to push, ex as well as to push extreme unpopular laws that eviscerate the capacities of government for the long term. The quantitative measures that US political scientists use to measure the movement of the two major parties, these are based on votes in the House of Representatives, particularly on issues having to do with the role of government in the economy, but there are other possible measures, suggest that um, Republicans have moved to the right much more in the period since the 1980s, especially, than Democrats have moved to the left. Both parties have moved. Both parties did move between 1960 and 1980 in opposite directions. But uh, House Republicans and the Republican Party in general have continued to move further and further to the right on various measures when they win elections and also when they lose elections. And that blows to smithereens the median voter theory that dominated my profession for so long that argued that when parties lose, they will move toward the center. Uh, I'm going to suggest tonight that Republican Party, uh, grand old party extremism, has separate elite and popular prongs. It's not one big cause. It's the coming together of two forces that have unfolded, particularly since 2000, 
with increasing force and have now fused in an explosive synthesis during the Trump presidency. At the elite level, organized billionaires and millionaires have come to use extra party organizations to advance ultra free market economic agendas, uh, ideas that are not popular with most Americans and are sometimes even at odds with the preferences of Republican voters and the kinds of business leaders, the kinds of chamber of commerce business leaders that used to be dominant in the Democratic Party from Eisenhower to even as late as John McCain's candidacy. But there's a separate strand of extremism that I'll also talk about that has unfolded at the grassroots, the conservative grassroots in the United States. About um, a fifth to a third, depending on what part of the country we're talking about, a fifth to a third of Republican voters are pro-business conservatives. They're the kinds of people that when I interview them, will say at the end of the interview, I wish you would stop tweeting as much. <laughs> Always the same phrase. Um, but the other two-thirds or so, more or less, are popular conservatives who are angry and fearful about societal changes unfolding in the United States. They love President Trump's tweets and would like to see more of them. Uh, they were originally grounded in 900 or so local Tea Parties that were formed voluntarily by conservatives at the start of the Obama presidency to oppose both Democrats and the Republican Party establishment of the time. Uh, they are motivated chiefly not by a desire to destroy uh, economic regulation, uh, but by fear of immigration, racial and generational changes, um, and they are the core uh, Trump voters. Uh, other core Trump voters overlapping with the Tea Party strand I just described are white evangelicals and pro-gun people who tend to be concentrated, particularly in smaller towns, rural areas, non-metropolitan parts of the United States. So I'm going to establish that argument, I hope, this afternoon by drawing on three major empirical studies that I've done with many colleagues. I don't do things alone. I do things with students and, and, uh, and other, other professorial colleagues. Uh, back in uh, the period between, uh, in the early Obama presidency, uh, Vanessa Williamson, uh, who's now at Brookings Institution, was then a graduate student. She and I did work on the Tea Party, uh, particularly at the grassroots as well as nationally, between 2009 and 2012, and that included meeting with and interviewing Tea Partiers in three parts of the United States, New England, Arizona, and Virginia. More recently, uh, I've, I have uh, co-directed with my colleague Alex Hurdle fernandez who's now at Columbia University, uh, the Shifting Terrain Project. That uses organizational analysis to track changes on the right and the left in think tanks, party committees, advocacy groups, constituency mobilizing organizations, and organized groups of very wealthy donors, millionaires and billionaires, on both the right and the left in American politics, and has led to some of the discoveries about the Koch network I'll summarize tonight. And then finally, right after the 2016 election, Mary Waters, who's a sociologist who studies uh, immigration and ethnicity at, the, at Harvard, and Kathy Swartz, who is at the Harvard School of Public Health, a health economist, uh, the three of us decided to start organizing regular visits to eight pro-Trump counties, two apiece in North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, in each case a medium-sized city area 
in the state, and uh, and we had lots of choices for the second choice, which was a smaller, more town-centered rural area. My part of that research, sometimes with my husband Bill driving the car, has been to drive, drive thousands of miles to visit these places uh, and interview uh, local Democratic and Republican leaders, local Tea Party leaders, where they're still meeting, they still are, in two of the counties, uh, business leaders, uh, religious leaders, uh, police chiefs, and uh, I discovered in all of them some of the anti-Trump resistance groups that I will talk briefly about at the end of the lecture when some people may want a somewhat more hopeful. Uh, no. Uh, I'm not presuming anybody's politics, but there are, might be some people who want to hear. All right. So let me start with the elite strand of extremism that has grown up since especially 2000 to outflank and transform the agendas of the Republican Party, both its candidates for office and its elected party leaders. Um, some time ago, at the launch of this Shifting Terrain project, I realized that since I had been preaching organizational analysis my entire life, I'm a historical institutionalist in political science, maybe it would make sense to actually look at organizations. Uh, it's one of those kinds of things that, you know, you realize when you're older, maybe you should do it. Uh, and so we drew up lists of uh, organizations in these categories that we felt were prominent in national politics on the left and right and were prominent uh, across many states in the U.S. because, of course, U.S. politics is not purely national. Uh, and I say we, it was Alex Hurdle Fernandez and I originally, and then we recruited others to the project. And we uh, started out by simply looking at their budgets of these organizations in 2002 and 2014, picking non-presidential election years, and uh, looking at how they changed, we also looked at how the population of prominent organizations changed because there were some new entrants. And what we discovered was quite startling on the right. We did the same thing on the left, but it was less startling on the left. Um, you can see here that Republican Party committees lost shares of the overall pie quite rapidly in this period. And a lot of non-party funders and constituency organizations and think tanks picked up the slack. And when we looked closely at what they were, we discovered that these were disproportionately Koch network organizations that were growing those resources outside the Republican Party committees, uh, outplanking the party on the right. And uh, their ability to raise money um, soon outpaced the Republican Party committees um, themselves. And um, the next step in the research involved, in part, comparing the organized groups of wealthy, ideologically motivated donors that had grown up since 2003 and 2005, first in the Koch network, the Koch seminars that meet twice a year in uh, secluded resorts uh, ringed by high-tech security, and the Democracy Alliance on the left of uh, progressive-minded millionaires and billionaires who originally met in some of the same resorts and sometimes the same resorts, actually, but not at the same time <laughs> as the Coke Network donors. Now the progressive donors meet in urban hotels, but they, they cut off an entire wing of the hotel, um, uh, to, 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 and they're, they're very luxurious. 
hotels. I've been to some of those meetings. Uh, so uh, we studied these entities. We've published a paper that you can actually read with our systematic comparison of these organizations of wealthy donors who concert their activities, not just for one election or one candidate, but across time and raise money to be contributed to other kinds of organizations, to think tanks, to mobilizing organizations, uh, so that they can shape political agendas, not just during elections, but between elections. And as you can see, our best estimates are that the membership of the wealthy uh, millionaires and billionaires on the Koch side, um, after lagging behind the left initially, the left is in blue, the right is in red, overtook it very uh, substantially. So there are now some 400 to 500 millionaires and billionaires. Uh, think Mr. and Mrs. Ohio widget manufacturer as a typical uh, membership unit in the Coke network who meet twice a year in these wealthy settings to hear plans for how to reshape the agendas uh, in American politics and win elections to fulfill those agendas. So um, obviously because membership also grew faster on the right, so did the amount of resources that by our best estimate, using a lot of newspaper sources, but also tax sources where we can, uh, are deployed uh, by these two uh, uh, wealthy donor consortia. Um, that's partly because the right has more members, but partly because they give more per person, we believe. It is not, by the way, because most wealthy people are all on the left, are all on the right. The proportion of wealthy people who are on the left ideologically has increased over time. So this is partly a matter of people joining and having faith in the Koch network and other concerting uh, mechanisms on the right, uh, being more willing to band together to pursue a shared agenda. Uh, the final kind of research we did comparing the two kinds of consortia was to take a look at how they raise, the money they raise is channeled to other organizations on the right and the left. And the striking thing about these pie charts, which we were able to put together with relatively comparable data for 2013 and 14. There were documents that were dropped on the floor at one of the hotels uh, of the Democracy Alliance and scooped up by the Washington Beacon and, bless their hearts, uh, put on the internet so we could analyze those. And then there are documents that are also left behind at Coke meetings and there are tax documents. So the best we could do was to take a look at relatively comparable pies of funds allocated to other political organizations through these consortia. And the striking thing here is that on the left, they I call it free market progressivism. That they are anarchy, actually. They scatter uh, less money to many more organizations. Um, they give a certain amount to longtime organizations like the Center for American Progress, Media Matters for America, that were at that time tied to the Democratic Party, but mostly they scatter it to zillions of little things that come and go from their agenda. Whereas the Koch network, uh, the biggest chunk here is the, in blue, and that's money that increasingly over time has been concentrated on eight core Koch organizations. Well, what are those organizations? Our analysis of the Koch network 
is not the same as, for example, Jane Mayer or other um, um, muckraking journalists. We value their work enormously. We like uh, what they uh, have shared in the public sphere. But our approach is not to simply say anything that wealthy people give money to is controlled by those people. In the case of the Koch Network, we take seriously that a network of organizations founded and controlled by people immediately tied to David and Charles Koch are the core of the Koch Network. If they give an occasional contribution to an anti-abortion group or to the Chamber of Commerce, so what? You know, that's just fluff. Um, the core of it are these organizations. And when you array them over time, which is always the first step that anybody who wants to do a historical institutional analysis should take, array it over time. Um, you see that in the early years, in the 70s and 80s, David and Charles Koch uh, were supporting a standalone free market think tanks, the Cato Institute, which they later lost control of, the Mercatus Center, the Charles Koch Foundation channeled a lot of money to those other organizations. Now they scatter money to lots of university people. A after having discovered that, you can really do a lot more by just giving money to lots of professors rather than founding centers. The second phase was in the 1990s and or, or into the early 2000s. It was much more traditional advocacy groups that pr promoted uh, anti-government uh, agendas, about um, healthcare, energy and climate, uh, privatizing social security, that's what the 60 plus association was. But it was in the 2000s that a breakthrough to a new kind of big money organization building occurred. And I believe relatively unique in American history. Uh, I think you know the Mark Hanna machine of the 1890s has some similarities but it was through the Republican Party at the time. This is a parallel set of organizations outside the Republican Party on the right, and the core of it were the Koch seminars that started meeting tw twice a year and raising the large amounts of money, not from David and Charles themselves, but from others who had faith in them as political strategists, and then channeling it through um, a series of organizations that were political party-like in that they could mobilize grassroots activists, shape elections, shape policy campaigns, uh, and uh, gather data for those purposes. The core of the Koch network in the 2000s is an organization called Americans for Prosperity, which is virtually a third major political party in the United States, as the Washington Post journalist Philip Bump said it did function that way for quite some time. And the notable thing in our research, we reconstructed the history of uh, paid operatives in the US states by using the Wayback Machine on the internet, which requires an enormous amount of patience uh, to use effectively. Uh, but our operation knows how to do that. So we don't track the money, we track the people. And that's much harder to hide. By the year 2007, which means before Barack Obama became president and before many journalists started noticing the Koch Network, it already had state operations with paid state directors in 15 
U.S. states with almost half of the population. In the dark areas, you can see the spread across the country into critical states that have been flipped toward the far right, like Wisconsin, North Carolina, and others. Um, when I visited Oshkosh, Wisconsin in 2017, I found three major party political headquarters on Main Street. I'm not sure they still have them, but uh, the Americans for Prosperity, they may have fallen back to Green Bay, but um, they are, this was very nice visually. Now, just briefly, AFP is remarkable in the American political context, less so in a European uh, context, because it combines central direction with federated organization across the states, because it deploys grassroots activists, as well as lobbyists, media ads, and money continuously, not just during the run-up to elections like the Democratic Party tends to do, but in ongoing issue campaigns and ongoing contacting campaigns in between elections. Um, it, at Americans for Prosperity added new heft, Alex Hurdle Fernandez and I have argued, because it came together with two other longer standing cross-state organizations, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which organizes Republican legislators to pass model bills in the states, and free market think tanks, which existed by recent times in all 50 states. They work together in what we call the Troika to pass bills at the state level, which often are more important than what does or does not pass in the national government. AFP is remarkable in that despite the fact that it recruited directors often from the Christian right or from pro-gun organizations, once they become co-cooperatives, they only talk about tax cuts opposition to business and environmental regulations, cuts in social spending, and steps to weaken the public sector and political opponents, particularly by disempowering public sector unions. Now, this uh, Koch network centered in AFP paralleled and leveraged the Republican Party between 2003 and uh, very recent times and it works to elect or appoint ultra-free market conservatives to office, and then once they're there, to hold them to the fire to carry through uh, an agenda. And I won't elaborate this except to say that our detailed research involved tracking the careers of people who became paid state directors of Americans for Prosperity. We've now expanded this to many more paid operatives so we know where they come from and where they go afterwards. That kind of career analysis is a very, very good way to understand how political organizations relate to one another. And the key finding in our research is that they tended to be pulled out of Republican campaigns and staffs, not elected positions, and then after a period of time as successful AFP state directors, they would either be promoted up in an internal labor market in the Koch operation, they pay very well, they pay better than the Republican Party does. Uh, and Republican Party operators complain about that. Uh, they can't hold their people. Or they go to work on the staffs of a governor or, as we will see, the Trump White House. So um, very quickly, we have also in our research looked at the question of whether the agenda being promoted by the Koch Network through the Republican Party by colonizing the Republican Party, by providing carrots and sticks, uh, is popular, and, and these are older surveys that go back to when the Koch Network was really in full bloom, 
but uh, most Americans favored raising the federal minimum wage. The co-cooperatives have kept that off the agenda at the federal level and really fought tooth and nail to stop it or roll it back in the states. Uh, collective bargaining rights for public sector unions are their number one target. They actually, and I'm not inferring that, they say it uh, in public statements. They say they model themselves on the public sector unions and they set out to destroy their ability to organize and collect dues. Uh, obviously, most Americans, even back then, now it's a majority, wanted to keep or improve Obamacare, but the Koch Network has been a fierce and consistent opponent of Obamacare. Uh, expanding Social Security benefits, forget it from the point of view of the Koch Network, even though most Americans, including Tea Party Americans at the grassroots, want that. They're, after all, Tea Party Americans at the grassroots are, are retired, most of them. Uh, and uh, infrastructure is something most business organizations favor, but the Koch Network opposes. Um, you can check this out in our detailed articles, but we have done statistical models to show that Koch Network operatives um, are an independent variable in addition to public opinion, union strength, and partisan control <coughs> of government. It helps to explain the success of the anti-union laws as they swept the United States in 2011 and the success in blocking states from adopting the expansion of Medicaid for the near poor under the Affordable Care Act. That's the most redistributive, most equality-enhancing part of Obamacare. Now, that's the elite prong. Let me turn to the popular prong of radicalism, which certainly overlaps with, but it's not the same and not caused by, the elite prong. Um, I'll start out by pointing that the popular roots of Republican Party extremism lie in intense, tightly networked minority of Americans, rooted in the Tea Party uh, at the grassroots and in the institutions and beliefs of Christian evangelicals and, for that matter, also pro-gun rights uh, people. And I want to stress that even though the American media go on and on about Trump's support as if it were most Americans. It is no such thing. Well, this is the 2016 election. You can see that fewer than a fifth of Americans voted for Donald Trump. More of them voted for Clinton. A lot of people just didn't vote and ended up being very surprised at the outcome. Uh, and... Uh, among those who voted for Trump, probably two-thirds are the kind of uh, popular supporters that I'm talking about, ethno-nationalists. The rest are business Republicans who thought they were going to get, and have in fact gotten, a lot of uh, tax cuts and, and regulatory cuts. Um, recently, Pew Research did a, a, a survey that, that I was very pleased to see uh, documented empirically what I already knew was true from talking to people which is that popular Tea Partiers uh, are the core of the people you see at those Trump rallies, the ones who are gung-ho for Donald Trump and will uh, not, are unshakable and supporters of his. Among Republicans, those who agree with the Tea Party are much more likely to have originally supported Trump and to have grown more supportive of him uh, during his time in office. Now, just as the elite strand of Republican radicalism unfolded for years before uh, 2016, 
so did um, the popular ethno-nationalist strand that I'm going to be talking about. Um, the elite strand, um, a lot of commentators have said the Koch network created the Tea Party at the grassroots. That is false. It's just wrong. Um, when Vanessa Williamson and I and our collaborators documented 900 local tea parties, and we didn't visit 900, but we visited quite a few, and we interviewed their leaders, we also looked at their websites to see what other groups they were linking to. Most of them, at the time that they were launched in the early Obama presidency, didn't really know much at all about the Koch organizations or other elite organizations. Uh, they came to recognize that they were being offered free bus trips to rallies and uh, some money to create a website. The same kind of things, by the way, that professional organizations on the left are now offering to grassroots groups on the left. Uh, but the money that was raised by volunteer tea partiers was raised the way it's raised at church suppers, by selling baked goods or by selling on consignments, tea party pins that were made in China, or Sarah Palin biographies, <laughs> or uh, t-shirts that showed um, Olympia snow being dumped down a mountain in Maine. So uh, th these were genuine volunteer grassroots groups, and they weren't there to cut Social Security. They were mostly on Social Security. When you actually went and talked to grassroots Tea Partiers, and this was later documented also in national surveys, their number one anger and fear was immigration. As one woman said to me, why do I have to select Spanish or English in my own country after I worked all my life to build this country? even in places where there were no immigrants. As a matter of fact, especially in places where there were no immigrants. People were watching Fox News from morning to night and were afraid of immigrants. Even more than African Americans, it was anger about Hispanic immigrants that fueled popular Tea Partyism. And it was a different agenda, as well as a different set of organizations not entirely controlled by and certainly not funded by uh, the elites uh, in the billionaire elites. So um, that um, the fact that the free market elites were building control over the Republican Party during this period actually created fissures in the Republican establishment that the elite Tea Partiers kind of resented. They felt their issues weren't getting number one attention, their issues being opposing immigrants uh, and cracking down on gay rights, and abortion rights. Um, so uh, I'll talk a little bit about how these factors came together. We know that from the start of the 2015-16 electoral cycle, Republican voters, this is only Republican voters in the bottom, uh, in the top part of this, were repudiating their own party's leaders. And uh, they didn't like their stance on government spending, which means I think that they didn't believe they were getting rid of Obamacare. Uh, which was uh, the one social spending program that Tea Partiers didn't like because they didn't think it went to them. And they thought it was being funded out of Medicare and Social Security funds for the elderly. They weren't doing a good job in their view on illegal immigration or on same-sex marriage. So uh, there was, a, you could say the elite capture by the far free market right actually made Republicans more vulnerable 
to a popular revolt from below going into the 2016 cycle. And when Vanessa and I interviewed Tea Partiers in Virginia in 2011, their lack of enthusiasm for Mitt Romney was almost as strong as our lack of enthusiasm for Mitt Romney. I mean, not for the same reasons, but they were looking for an alternative, and they certainly were intrigued by Donald Trump, who at that time launched his political career by questioning the native, uh, the American identity of Barack Obama. They would have voted for him in 2012 if he had been there. Uh, that first summer in 2015-16, Donald Trump uh, played his other big card, which is domination of the media. He gleefully uh, mocked and eliminated all of the regular Republican Party people running for office. Uh, and he did it with the aid of about $2 billion in free media time, much more than other Republicans and Democrats most of the coverage of Donald Trump was either he's winning the horse race or favorable. Most of the coverage of Hillary Clinton was her emails of destroyed America, uh, led by the New York Times. Um, and Bernie Sanders had pretty favorable coverage, uh, but not at the same level. So uh, the deeper trends that were also, of course, bubbling along, I've already talked about it, the rapid immigration and the spheres that it sparked that helped launched the Tea Party, a changing religious landscape, which I can't go on and on about tonight, but the fact is that white Christian evangelicals of a conservative bent are becoming a smaller and smaller minority in the United States, but they are a minority spread out across the heartland of the country, the Upper South and the Midwest and the Inner West. They are consistent churchgoers and they are superb citizens. They pay attention to public affairs and they vote. And so they carry far more than their weight in the electorate. Uh, and of course, the U.S. Electoral College favors groups that are spread out over the geography beyond big cities. This has always been true. In fact, it was part of the deliberate design of the United States to get away from the control of places like New York City. Um, it's not just about racism. It's also a popular uh, impulse in U.S. institutions. But in this era, it means that groups that have an organized presence and are intensely networked and have common purpose across many states and across many districts within states have disproportionate clout, not just in Congress, but in electing the president of the United States. The Tea Party people uh, were much more likely to have warm feelings about Trump. This data from back in 2016 shows only Republicans, and it shows that Trump supporters were more likely to be worried about the growing number of newcomers from other countries threatening U.S. values, more worried about Islam as a religion that they believed encourages violences, or as one interviewee of mine told me, Islam isn't really a religion, he said. It's a political movement. Um, and he went on to express concern about Jews as well. Um, and actually, you know, in that interview, I had a little discussion with him about that. And I said, you know, where I come from, there really are a lot of Jewish people. There's a lot of Islamic people, and they're really not all alike. So. Just like um, I'm a Methodist, 
and you're, you belong to that evangelical crowd, and we're not exactly the same. He listened. I doubt he believed it. <laughs> um, all right. So immigration is, uh, in some areas of the United States, a real hot point. In North Carolina, which is the place I'm describing right now, it was fought out in religious terms. Uh, these are the billboards that exist along I-40 into and out of Hickory, North Carolina. One of them talking about by something called the North Carolina Pastors Organization, which I have found no actual pastors to be members of. Uh, but my Tea Party guy did tell me he thought his pastor would be a member if he knew about it. Uh, and blaming uh, Muslims for 2001. And then the, the uh, more liberal Christian congregations across North Carolina uh, uh, quoting from Leviticus uh, in opposition. In uh, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, it's much more uh, a fight about the arrival of Dominican immigrants displacing or at least reviving the economy that used to be a coal and mine-centered economy. The Dominicans are working in large fulfillment centers for much less money, but their presence has created uh, uh, ground for Trump-like politicians like Lou Barletta, uh, who was a Trump politician before Trump. And that county flipped from Obama to Trump in the 2016 election. The other big strand that went into Trumpism, and I want to stress this, is law and order. By the time you got to 2016, violent crime in the United States was way down. And, uh, of course, researchers know that immigrant-rich areas have less violent crime or less crime, period, than native areas. But you wouldn't know that from watching Fox News. And question number seven in our Tea Party interview uh, it was, where do you get your news and information? And I remember the man who looked at me across the table at the Comfort Inn and said, not where you do. <laughs> he had a sense of humor. Uh, uh, he watched Fox from morning to night and uh, followed far-right websites, and those are far more important now than even Fox. So uh, if you watch those outlets or listen to them, you think that disorder is everywhere and that it's racially based and immigrant based. And uh, law and order was a big theme in Trump's campaign. If any of you who saw the convention saw him talk that way. And one of my graduate students, Michael Zurab, actually got a hold of a data set of the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the white police fraternal union and union uh, group their membership and their lodges, and showed that net of all the other factors that went into Trump's victory in 2016, the, uh, the uh, Fraternal Order of Police lodges were uh, a positive factor. And that was in, he, he was able to do that because the Fraternal Order of Police did not endorse Mitt Romney. They did endorse um, Trump. So political geography was the key. We know this. The urban cores voted for Hillary Clinton. That's in the blue. Everywhere else, and particularly the smaller areas, voted for Trump. Trump counties had more people who were U.S. born. Trump counties have people who would answer that they are Americans, if you ask what their ethnicity is. And Trump counties, and, 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 and uh, as we all know, uh, that spread over the geography means that uh, Trump was able to carry 
by a hair, the critical states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Now, I'll just very quickly remind us of what we all know. A big tipping point in history can happen by a very small margin. The election that happened in 2016 um, will leave an irrevocable mark on U.S. history no matter what happens in 2020 and 2022. It was won barely in a non-majoritarian way, but because Trump was elected along with a Republican-controlled Congress that was fully in harness with ultra-free market policymaking, and because Supreme Court appointments were available to be filled and other federal judicial appointments, there probably will be another Supreme Court appointment before the next election. Um, that meant that uh, it could tip uh, policy uh, very quickly. Nevertheless, people who didn't think about the Republican Party's transformation in the dual way that I'm describing tonight were surprised by the alacrity with which the Trump administration adopted the Koch agenda. After all, he had campaigned mainly on immigrant bashing. And he had even made promises that suggested like he might be some kind of fusion of Richard Nixon and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but the minute he came to office, uh, he saw where his advantages lay, and he uh, turned to people who could suggest people to staff the administration and suggest a legislative agenda that would please Republicans in Congress. So uh, very soon, the Republican Party claimed a sweeping mandate, uh, despite no popular majority, despite unpopular ideas, to uh, carry through both a racial ethnic crackdown that Trump had promised and a series of ultra-free market uh, policy changes that people didn't really want. And nowhere is it more obvious that personnel is policy than in the early Trump administration and even in the later iterations of it. The Trump administration was immediately dominated in all of its parts except for immigration enforcement and to some degree the Justice Department by Koch-recommended, Koch-connected officials prepared to pursue big tax cuts, privatization of public education, evisceration of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Um, at the time, Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House, very influential, and he was a longtime Koch Network groomed uh, Republican leader. Mike Pence, a favorite of both the Christian right and the Koch Network, did a lot of the staffing of the federal agencies and the original White House director was Mark Short, the former head of Freedom Partners, which was the money collecting and dispersing bank for the Koch network that had been built up since 2000. Um, within a year, as the big tax cut that eventually went through was building momentum in Congress, Charles Koch uh, met privately with leading uh, Trump administration people at their uh, spring 2017 meeting and was expressing a lot of happiness 
about what was going on. Yeah, not so happy about trade, not so happy about immigration, but boy, those tax cuts and, and the regulatory cuts. Uh, so the regulatory cuts have gone through. The immigration crackdowns have been ruthless and unremitting, and I would argue a separate strand. Um, probably the only policy strand that Trump himself is personally and viscerally committed to. It took him a while to assemble some of the people prepared to order uh, changes to the legal immigration system, um, cutbacks in the rights of legal American um, um, uh, residents, um, expulsion of populations that had been admitted under our refugee protections, a virtual elimination of the acceptance of refugee populations into the United States. And that, all that's on top of the separation of the children and the families at the border that you've all uh, seen in, in the news media. An unremitting effort to undo the Affordable Care Act came within a couple of votes, one vote of passing the Congress, opposed only by uh, a senator from Alaska who had won despite defying the Republican Party, Susan Collins in Maine, and a man dying of cancer who had been insulted by President Trump. The bottom line, and I'll wrap up and open the floor for discussion, is that the post-2000 Koch moves into party-like activities captured the GOP and boosted its anti-government agendas. And I haven't even talked about the states. The states matter just as much. Alex Hurdle Fernandez has published a wonderful book called State Capture that lays all that out. Uh, they realized what were only partially realized dreams from older players like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Club for Growth. The Trump-Pent presidency, though, is a new animal in the sense that it fuses that Koch network anti-government agenda with a, an angry and virulent strand of Tea Party and populist nativism. Uh, and that fusion explains the why the Republican Party continues to move ever further to the right, even after losing the 2018 midterm elections, and why it advances unpopular policies that increase economic inequality and weaken government capacities. And this is really important. U.S. federalism magnifies all of these tendencies because the Electoral College plus changes in the federal courts, which advance every single day, every single day Mitch McConnell is putting through more Federalist Society, far-right federal judges. Um, those tendencies may allow a Trumpified GOP to retain power as a dwindling minority, even if Trump himself is gone and will certainly leave the ground open for a more competent Trumpist uh, to win in the future. I'll, this is my final slide. We don't know what's going to happen next. I learned a long time ago that it's best to be a historical social scientist to explain things that have already happened uh, rather than things that might happen in the future. That happened when I was a freshman in college, and I wrote a paper back in those days when you had to retype the whole paper. Uh, over a weekend explaining why Kwame Nkrumah was a modernizing leader who would never be removed from office in Ghana. And he left Ghana that weekend and was replaced by a military coup. <laughs> there was no word processor. I couldn't rewrite the paper. I had to hand it in anyway. 
So I don't do that anymore. I talk about possibilities. And I think, but one thing I'm quite certain of is that the dual radicalization of the Republican Party is not a momentary thing. It is not a matter of psychology. It is not just a matter of people who are afraid for the next election. It is a fusion based on two kinds of convictions that I have described, two tendencies. Uh, there will be intra-party tensions, and we can talk about those, like the struggles over impeachment, over trade policy, over what's happening in Syria. But um, the Republican free market elites like what Trump has done and enabled. They want him reelected, or at least somebody like Pence in his place. Uh, and uh, the ethno-nationalist populists are absolutely thrilled at uh, Trump's accomplishments and promises. Uh, his failures may prompt ever more authoritarian moves, and I don't think the Republican Party, as currently constituted, will stand up to check those in any significant way. So the United States is in a pretty scary period right now. On the other hand, there is a center-left response that has gained an enormous amount of energy since 2016. The other part of my research, which I can talk about in the question period if you like, has been to go out and discover grassroots anti-Trump resistance organizations, voluntary groups, formed in even more places across even more broad swatches of the geography than the Tea Parties after 2009. That's startling, because liberals are actually concentrated in big cities. But the anti-Trump resistance is everywhere, and it's led by, sorry, not a glamorous category of people, <laughs> older white women. <laughs> librarians, teachers, healthcare workers, whoever organizes every, anything in the United States. Those are the kinds of people that do. And when I say this to Democratic Party operatives, their eyes glaze over. But those are the people who mounted the candidacies, who did the door knocking, who won the victories in both liberal and moderate and sometimes conservative areas in 2018. Those are the people who have to remain active if the Democrats are going to have a shot in 2020 because, believe me, the Christian evangelicals, the pro-gun people, and the Tea Party people are going to turn out in droves in 2020. Thank you. That was terrific. There's going to be a lot of questions. I know. I think maybe, um, and I, I have a number here, but I'm going to just ask. And we can't open windows, huh? This is like the buildings at Harvard. Yeah, because people might jump. Um, so, um, yeah. You can't open them, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, actually, you need a special key. You do, actually. Um, I, I want to, I'm actually kind of interested in pursuing this and the suburban white voter, but. Let me ask you, though, to say a little bit more about trade, because um, it, it, you know, that's clearly one of Trump's signature issues, and it was during the campaign. So it was immigration, it was law and order, but trade, China was right there. And we know from David Alters and his colleagues' work that, um, that you know, that, that concerns about trade figured prominently in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, kind of in, in the big industrial states. Mm -hmm. 
And we also know, as you pointed out, kind of just in passing, I mean, at least Charles Koch is like, you know, been fighting Trump on, on, yeah, on the yeah, trade yeah, question. So he doesn't like right? it. Doesn't yeah. like it at all. Doesn't fight it very hard. So, I mean, how, who is Trump appealing to? Is this um, part of the Tea Party base as well? Um, because you didn't, you didn't flag that, or is there another constituency out there? I mean, I know he personally had this has been a hobby horse for twenty five years or more, but um, but he's a savvy enough politician. Um, he also had a very different position on abortion, and immigration, and he changed on guns too, actually. right? So, um, who's he appealing to? Where where's the support for this? Well, um, I think you correctly sense that I'm not really in the economic determinist camp on, in the argument. Mm-hmm. There's been an argument that's been going on about Trump's base of support. Is it downscale, uh, displaced factory workers and other white working class people? Uh, I think that that argument, and I'm certainly not simply basing it on my field work. I wouldn't do that. I try to triangulate mm-hmm. between field work, what I see and hear when I look and meet people, and what uh, the, the uh, statistical studies show. Uh, I think that the research is now pretty clearly on the side of uh, the ethno-nationalist resentments being the major factor that feeds popular Trumpism. Does that mean that there aren't some uh, blue-collar workers, older whites, who remember something better that he appealed to? He definitely sold a kind of nostalgia during the 2016 election that resonated with people on all these lines at once. And, for example, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, which lots of people have studied, and it is one of the counties that I have visited repeatedly, uh, there's certainly no question. I mean, the local newspaper guy, the old guy, there's always, even most mostly these newspapers are disappearing, but there's usually an old guy who's still around that has been kept on for a while before the conglomerate fires him. And the one that I talked to there told me that he was sure Trump was going to carry Luzerne when, when he started seeing the old union guys in the Trump rallies. Mm-hmm. And... So that's an example, Erie County, Pennsylvania. We've studied the state of Pennsylvania in great detail. So those two areas, plus some areas around uh, Pittsburgh, would be places where, yeah, the displacements due to trade policy happened quite a long time ago. The factories have been gone for a long time and closed under Obama. But people remember what life was like, and so Trump's promises were part of an appealing package that stood along with building the wall, which mm-hmm. ordinary people will always tell me, that wall, we want it built, and we know that he's having trouble. So they don't really blame him for the trouble. I mean, he's never to blame for anything uh, in the eyes of his strong supporters. And then others are uh, <coughs> thinking about the guns. Uh, Luzerne County was <coughs> just inundated with National Rifle Association ads. And nobody should underestimate the Christian right congregations where people's, that's where their social life is <coughs> in many of these places outside of work. And for the women, that would be especially important. 
So I think the way to understand the appeal on trade policies, and I think it fits with David Artur's work, mm -hmm. is that if you have been in an area that experienced that, <coughs> you're more likely. But those same people are also the ones resonating with the nativist argument and with the, the general idea that life was more <coughs> prosperous and socially integrated and the right people were in charge. And now that's not true. And the other thing I would point to that I cannot quantify is the opioid crisis. Everywhere I've visited, that has absolutely devastated communities. We're visiting now in these eight counties white areas. I mean, there are African Americans in the North Carolina counties, but really they're overwhelmingly white. So when business people start talking in an interview about they can't find workers who will show up for work, who will get out of bed, who will do anything. Now, yeah, sure, you know, you can say to them, and I do, did you try paying higher wages? You know, I, I do all that. I say all those things. But there's an edge to what they're saying, and they're talking about their white neighbors, and they will often admit to you halfway through an interview that their cousin just died of an old opioid overdose, or, or their kid is one of those ones who won't get out of bed uh, and stop playing with the Game Boys because he's drugged out. So that, I think, contributed to a sense of disintegration, and I think when people feel social disintegration around them, they want someone to blame. And so Trump's law and order argument, I mean, if you talk to a local police chief, they know perfectly well that it's not the immigrant community they're responsible for that's, that's really doing the drugs. They'll tell you, or many business people will tell you, they're the ones that come to work. They're the ones who are actually doing the work. But that doesn't mean that there's not an appeal out there, particularly to the I would say downwardly mobile middle class whites or to the middle class people who feel left behind by the cultural trends. Maybe their incomes are even somewhat higher. That's what the research shows, um, the, 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 the core of Trump supporters. Um, but they're reacting to his promise to restore something and they're looking for scapegoats. So the suggesting that it's the drug dealer who comes from Pittsburgh rather than the local people who are frankly selling the drugs um, is very resonant. Okay, thanks. Okay, we're going to open it up here. Um, so I would just ask you to, um, you know, just state your, your name, kind of where you are, the LC or some, you know, yeah. other institution, and keep the question brief. We'll take the gentleman in the bluish shirt. Um, I'm Jacob. I'm a second year student here. And to get to the core of your argument that there are basically two strands that propel Trump to victory one, the actual electorate, and then two, the Koch network or some sort of business interest network, sounds an awful lot like what Noam Chomsky says in his analysis of the election. He says a very similar thing. So my question to you is this Has there been sort of a coup in which the far right has come to power on purely business interests while selecting Trump as the useful idiot who is very capable, nonetheless, of catering to social interests that are not necessarily correlated with the economics that he actually carries out. I'm going to take another question, and um, we'll take the gentleman right over here. Uh, thank you. Matthew Schmack, a postgraduate student at the University of College London. 
Um, do you view um, Trump and the coalition of business interests and uh, the grassroots as a natural progression of the similar coalition that uh, Barry Goldwater cultivated in 1964 and Ronald Reagan in, in, in his campaigns? Or, or do you view it uh, differently because of the organisational structures that they, they managed to get the country passage? Okay, it is in some ways a continuation and deepening of tendencies that have been unfolding on the right in America before. Um, I don't I don't think Goldwater conservatism was quite as the same kind of elite formation. I would say it was more regional. Um, and I want to make clear that I don't think this is business driven primarily. Um, I think that there's reason to believe that the same people acting as business owners and managers versus as wealthy people who throw away, throw around their money, they're not throwing it away actually, um, let alone somewhat distinct groups that overlap but are not exactly the same. Ideological wealthy people operate somewhat differently than people who are actually in charge of organizations. That's a controversial point. It's argued among scholars in my <clears throat> neck of the woods. Paul Pearson and Jacob Hacker believe it's all the Chamber of Commerce types. It's all the big business corporate leaders. Our research on the Coke Network has, and for that matter on the Democracy Alliance, has convinced me that wealthy people with money to spend, too much money to spend, uh, are able to give uh, expression to unfettered ideological purism mm -hmm. in a way that business leaders, for prudential reasons, are less likely to do. And actually, I think we're seeing those splits now. Uh, and one of the dilemmas for Democrats in the United States is, are they going to welcome the dissident corporate leaders, or are they going to try to go it alone? Good luck with that in America, trying to go it alone. You'll lose if you do that. Uh, that's me giving an opinion. But I think it's hard to read out all business leaders in, in the United States if you want to win, um, particularly with the unions as weak as they are. Uh, so I do think that this is a deepening of the anti-free mark of the pro-free market anti-government tendencies that Goldwater conservatism expressed originally, partly because of a revolt of Western elites against uh, the Eastern um, corporate um, um, establishment. Now, on the popular ethno-nationalist side, uh, you know, I, one, I gave a talk comparing the Tea Party and the anti-Trump resistance in the spring, and uh, an African-American gentleman got up and said, why won't you just say they're racist? It's as simple as that. Well, I mean, social scientists are reluctant to use that term um, without nailing down exactly what you mean by it. But our research has also suggested that the anti-immigrant impetus is, if anything, more um, virulent in people's feelings, their fears and their angers, than uh, the anti-African-American uh, impetus. Now, there's no question that the Tea Party was fueled by people who were startled and angered by the appearance of Barack Obama in the White House. But it wasn't just the color of his skin, it was that he represented political power of African Americans. So how political power for African Americans is frightening on the American right because they have practically none. I mean, uh, 
They all will welcome the occasional black preacher who will come to a conservative meeting and tell them that they're right. They love it. Uh, so, and when you, if you say to them they're racist, they think you, that you mean they wouldn't welcome the preacher. They interpret it in personal terms, whereas social scientists understand racism much more in terms of the stereotypes people believe in, those are the quantitative measures, or questions of organized political power. So on the organized political power front, no question about it, organized black political power is very um, counter-mobilizing to the right. But I think the major thrust at the popular level is this anger and fear over immigration, and there is absolutely nothing unusual about that in American history. You can go back. The United States is a nation of immigrants. It's also a nation that periodically explodes against immigrants. Mm -hmm. So both happen. And in fact, nativist movements proliferate during right at the end of periods of rapid immigration. So uh, against the Irish Catholics in, in, in the middle of the 1800s, and then against uh, the Jews and Italians and, and Eastern Europeans in the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century period. And then we had a hiatus in the arrival of a lot of groups from 1924 to 1965. But from 1965 until recently, uh, there have been new waves of immigrants arriving in the United States. And they come mainly from uh, Central America, to some degree from Africa, the Caribbean, and from Asia. And its reaction against that, particularly the Central American component uh, and Mexican component, that fuels the Tea Party angry. But but is it a replay of an oldie but goodie or baddie or in American history? Absolutely. Um, so, and, and I just want to say I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and <laughs> that's not because I don't think some conspiracies exist. They do, but you have to prove them. And our research suggests that this is a coming together of tendencies. Now, does that mean that many corporate leaders and certainly many ideological billionaires and millionaires are not very happy to play footsie with all this stuff? No, it doesn't mean that. They are very happy to play footsie with it. But they didn't create it, and they don't control it. And it would actually be better if they did control it. Because then you could have a bargain with them to set some limits on it. This kind of fusion (laughs) has happened in the West before. I'm not going to speak in public the label that uh, we could apply to it because people misunderstand that label retroactively. But if you go back and you look at the 1930s, the same kind of playing footsie on the basis of conservative elites of the day, who are not exactly the same as <coughs> now, with ethno-nationalist resentment, was going on. And the elites always think, oh, he's a clown. It doesn't matter. The Cokes think all politicians are clowns that they can control. They say so. Charles Cook said so in an interview. Uh, they do control some of them. I, I would say they control Mitch McConnell. <coughs> but they don't control Donald Trump. And they would prefer not to have him, all things considered. You have your hand halfway up, no? Uh, Ursula. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Thanks so much. I wondered if I could pick up on a strand that you mentioned in passing, but which I think is really crucial here, and that is the courts. Um, And specifically, I mean, if you're thinking about 
For instance, the litigation in multiple states during the Obama administration and in more recent years related to private school voucher programs, which is a core part of this thrust that you're describing. You're seeing this constellation of organizations, uh, organizations like the Cato Institute, like the Institute for Justice, like the Friedman Foundation that are getting involved in multiple states at the same time. And they have enormous power in terms of writing amicus briefs uh, and, and, and so on. So I wondered, first of all, if you could tell us a little bit about what your research suggests about the links between these sorts of foundations and the groups that you're describing in the first part of your talk. And then I wondered if you might also speculate for us, because of this, the Conservatives have been so focused on the courts in this really laser-like fashion, not only through amicus briefs and, and so on and these foundations, but also in terms of you know making the right appointments. <laughs> so I'm wondering what the prospects you see are for the left to uh, engage with that arena of conflict, because in some ways it's it, it's one of the most crucial ones. So, um, David, we'll take a question here, and then I do want to try to get somebody from the <laughs> overflow room. We won't be able to see them. Line up, somebody's. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, David Smith from the University of Sydney. This is like part B of Ursula's question, and building on what you said about personnel is policy. So you mentioned that left-wing groups have learnt from right-wing groups about how to distribute money, but do you see any sort of equivalent? The right learns a lot more from the left. Yeah. Mm. Left see, is reluctant to learn from the right. Do you see any equivalent thing about the left learning about supplying personnel in the way that the right does, whether that's the Federalist Society or all of these other sort of organisations? Do you want to... Yeah, let me talk, let me talk about that. You know, I think I, I didn't stress it here, uh, and I, I, I encourage everybody to read uh, Alex's state capture. But a major strand of our research in our research group and of the article that we published on the Coke Network and the, and the DA and the book that we're putting together now is to look at this cross-state organizing. And the pieces... See, here I want to just make an analytic comment. It's not all one thing. It's the way things come together. And sometimes the layers start at an earlier time. Many of the key organizations that can push policies across U.S. states were launched several decades ago. And they were launched to counter what the left then had, which was a powerful set of organizations, the public sector unions, to do the same sort of thing. Public sector unions weren't organized everywhere, but they were organized in a lot of states, and they were sort of common carriers for um, um, liberal progressive um, policymaking. Um, those were directly uh, targeted by the people who built up the American Legislative Exchange Council. And the American Legislative Exchange Council went through a bunch of fits and starts and made mistakes um, before it learned to do its thing which is to marry a certain amount of business money and preferences with um, conservative think tanks, which in the same period were being um, set up across all 50 states using foundation tax-free mechanisms that exist in the United States uh, and coordinated their activities with um, actually some other conservative uh, social conservatives, although not so much with the social conservatives. Then you get the Coke Network with AFP, which provides the final piece in this, in this set. Now, we could include the Federalist Society in, in that, too. The Federalist Society is obviously built up over a long period of time by people who, who saw themselves as persecuted in America's law schools, and therefore it really helps 
it really helps to see yourself as persecuted. It's very energizing. <laughs> At least in the United States it is. And, uh, you know, they formed study groups and they have lectures and by now they are a machine. Um, they are a network of people and they can vet people to, to not make the kinds of mistakes they thought earlier Republican appointees to the federal courts were making when they occasionally made the wrong kinds of decisions from their perspective. So we are now seeing the coming to fruition of that as well. Um, I think these are different organizational networks with some shared supporters, but the final pieces have come together uh, partly with a lot of support from the Koch network, which is a network. It's not just the Kochs. And of course, it's got, they've got their dream now. They've got an all-Republican operation in place, able to nominate federal judges. It's really the lower levels of the, the appellate courts that matter even more than the Supreme Court. Will the left be able to counter that? I doubt it. Um, you know, there is the American Constitution Society, but it's not the same kind of animal as the Federalist Society. I believe that if the Democrats ever build sustained power by winning elections, uh, at the state and national and congressional uh, as well as presidential level, they may eventually be able to propose institutional reforms in the federal courts that might spark a certain kind of change in the way judges are appointed and uh, remain in office and are circulated through the federal judiciary. But the amount of federal judges that are being appointed right now, and there are children, most of them, um, uh, they're going to be there. And uh, so um, what is more likely to happen, uh, although I'm not sure, is that liberals in the United States will figure out that they need to win elections. They sort of forgot that for a while. And they can backslide very easily. Um, you know, we are not talking about the impeachment struggle, but the dream of taking Donald Trump out of office through uh, an impeachment mechanism, uh, which is not going to happen. And even if it did, you get Mike Pence. Um, so the question is whether winning elections and then adopting policies that aren't as easily found unconstitutional, that's more likely as a route forward. And I don't think we know yet what the current Supreme Court is going to do about state-level variation. And I would be willing to bet that there's a real chance that a certain amount of deference to state-level variation will occur, even among very ideological conservative judges, because they represent a minority, and they know it. And trying to tell the wealthiest parts of the United States, well, you Brexit people know all about this, trying to tell the wealthiest parts of the United States, no, you can't have anything you want, that's probably not going to be a long-term winner. But I don't think this process is going to be easily reversed. I just John, right here, we'll take John, and then I'll come back there. Yeah. You um, declared yourself uh, averse to... Uh, economic determinism in your analysis. But Simple I, economic Okay, but I wonder if, if uh, there might be elements on both sides of your story, from below and from above, that might merit further investigation in this regard. So, for example, you mentioned in passing the opioid epidemic, and before that we had the meth 
epidemic. And some scholarship and reportage suggests that that arises out of you know, the consolidation of the food industry, deindustrialization, and so forth. So I wonder about that as a backdrop. And then secondly, when you talked about the billionaires and millionaires and mentioned these widget makers in Ohio, I wonder if actually if you were to look closely at what kinds of economic interests uh, mm -hmm. we're talking about, how they're organized, and also as a historical institutionalist, whether these are people who are not socialized into the old forms of, you know, the Bohemian Club on the West Coast, secret societies uh, on the East Coast, these old clubs, these old mm -hmm. wasp establishment or investment bank. Well, those sort of people have gone the way of yeah. the dodo. Okay. Yeah. So, so whether there are there, there's a, another kind of cluster um, that the Betsy DeVos and and, and that kind of oh, yeah, those, they're hard nosed. Those sorts of sectoral interests that have evolved since the you know since the seventies and eighties. Absolutely, and let me just answer this quickly. If you look at our article in Studies in American Political Development, which is the first cut on what's going to be a book comparing the Coke uh, operation and the Democracy Alliance. We, we have assembled uh, the best we can membership lists. Neither side cooperates, huh. including the liberals. They won't cooperate. They're into secrecy, too. In fact, they can get even angry. I can tell you from personal experience if you try to put their name on a list. But we have hundreds of names of people we're quite certain have been Coke seminar members or Democracy Alliance members. And we... We looked up their residences and their industries, and um, another angle that we have to take a little bit further is whether they're heirs to fortunes or uh, actually have built the fortune themselves. And there's just no question that the cult network is much more spread out across the country. They're people who often are still active businessmen and their wives. It's usually a businessman and his wife. Occasionally, it's a businesswoman. Um, but the DeVos family is a good example, the Hendricks family in Wisconsin, and they built actual businesses. They're likely, they're more likely to be in the manufacturing and the extractive sectors, um, whereas the wealthy people in the Democracy Alliance are likely to be in high-tech medical services. Um, you have charitable foundation types in both cases. You have hedge fund people on both sides. Wall Street is bisexual. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it always has been. So, you know, that is, uh, there, there definitely are, I'm a Weberian, if you, I mean, so that means I do think that economic interests matter. They interact with them, they often condition. And, and the point you made about the food processing industry, I mean, my visits to some of these counties make me think that looking at the kinds of businesses that are flourishing and dying and their impact on social relations and family ties is probably even more important. And the growing businesses in large parts of the United States are catalog fulfillment centers. They are sending people like me the shoes that I buy, and I, I buy a lot of shoes. <laughs> so... Um, you know, it's five, Luzerne County is five hours from Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, um, New York, it's even closer to New York, Boston. And so the jobs that are growing in that area, aside from medical jobs, which the women are taking, are likely to be in these big fulfillment centers where people stand there, a, 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 a conveyor belt, or operate a thing with, with the hands, 
And then they load stuff onto trucks and the trucks go out by the hundreds and they're driven by people who, who really can't have a very normal family life. These are brutal jobs. They're tough. They're, uh, uh, and they have a very different set of consequences for the building of community and group consciousness than the sort of factories did back then. Um, so I, I think that way of thinking about things, you can see once again, bringing organizations and social relationships and social networks into the picture, not simply treating a population as if it's a bunch of potatoes in a sack with individual economic interests. Most American social science treats politics as if it were a matter of demographic slices that think alike. Well, all black people don't think alike. All Hispanic people don't think alike. All white people are having a civil war in the United States over what America means. That's what's going on in America. It's a civil war inside the white middle class about what America has meant and what it will mean politically. Uh, but you can get more granularity if you begin to look at the kinds of work people are doing, what it means for their community relations, uh, the churches they do or do not belong to, the other social groups they might belong to, because it's networks that shape politics uh, and political views, not simply individual isolated economic levels or college educational levels. Uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Go ahead, and then I'll grab. Okay, going back here. Uh, Des King from Oxford. Um, Theodore, thank you very much for a terrific talk. Um, as you know, you and I disagree slightly about the uh, significance of race in this discussion, uh, and I want to push you a little bit on it. The all your slides were white people. There are no African Americans involved in the uh, Tea Party movements. Um, few. in the police unions, which are by definition white and so forth, and white evangelicals, as you described, are, are white. So for me, the Trump era has to be put in the context of racial hierarchies in the United States and racial orders. Um, and the policies you indicated, which he's put into place, are all bad for black people. And there are many others, weakening affirmative action, uh, attacking the ways, attacking uh, certain aspects of social policy, not, not all of them, but some of them. Um, so it's very hard for me not to see a lot of the trends you're documenting as a reaction to the success of civil rights in the 60s and 70s, which have then been building up ever since. In, there's an opposition building up to it ever since, which is now extremely powerful. Uh, and the, the scale of hostility around racial inequality in the States is, is really quite exceptional at the moment. Um, and I'm not just in my own view, but I think the, the views of others. And I, we could two recent academic books which perhaps help help with this are uh, Jardina's book White Ethnic Identity, which is a study using public opinion uh, at, at, from the University of Michigan PhD, finding that there was something called a white ethnic group in the electorate which Trump has been able to mobilize, which hadn't really been recognized before. Yeah, I think my before. maps show that the, the people who say they were Americans. Exactly. Yeah. So, but he's there. He's arrived. He's able to mobilize them. They've been there for a while. And then, and then the most of the studies of the twenty sixteen election, the Tesla studies and others, which which argue that uh, racial animosity was a key factor in, in Trump's success. So, while I think that I mean what you're documenting is outstanding and really important about this, the institutional bases of the rightward shift to extreme extremism and republicanism. I think nobody else has done this. The one of the reasons it seems to me it can take 
traction is because of the, the uh, extremely hostile and fragile racial context. Can you hold for one second? I want to just get the fellow, it's uh, the guy with the beard. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can't see. That's all I can see. From you. <laughs> You've got. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, face. In my face? Yeah. Oh, well, I can stand over here. Yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't bother you. So go ahead. Thank you for for the talk. Uh, fascinating. I, I I'm a PhD student in statistics here at the LC. I have uh, two questions, but I don't. You can answer either. You think more interesting, but you know, I have a feeling that Demogorgs are a little bit doomed, and I was wondering if you have some. What's doomed? Demogorgs are doomed, you know, and, and you know. No, don't know. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> over. For one second, no. and we've only had one woman ask this question. So, so I. But what's your second question? My second question would be actually about women, and you know, you mentioned that women are um, organizing <laughs> the movement on the left, <laughs> and whether whether there is other factors that you can see that could play a role. Um, Something like a, like a surprise that Trump sort of connected two movements that people perhaps haven't done before, and whether women and gender played any role in that. Yeah. And in the far back, thank you. It's a lot to remember here. I'll remember. Thank you very much for an interesting um, uh, lecture. Just a quick question about Syria, because you didn't talk about that. <laughs> what do you think of that decision and everything that's going on right now? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. One disastrous Trump decision after another, and we haven't seen anything yet. Uh, so I don't know what more to say about that, but it's not surprising. He's very transactional, and whatever he thinks gives him some advantage, even an advantage in distracting at a moment, he will do. And once he does something, he never backs down. But the thing to understand about the Trump presidency is that personnel is policy is right. But in a way, the slides I showed you today were more relevant to the first two years than they are now. Because by now, anybody who, who is anywhere near him cannot question him. I mean, you'd be better off thinking about um, Caligula or, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't be restricted to modern times. I mean, there, there are the qualities of obsequiousness of fear around a, a, an arbitrary leader. Probably not going to take a sword out and chop somebody's head off, but... American elites, it turns out, are very, very sensitive to being tweeted against. <laughs> Who would have thought? And I don't think I fully understand that. I mean, why, why would you sell your reputation in history for protection from a tweet? Except that nobody knows how history is going to turn out. And the people who are supporting Trump are still hoping he's their vehicle to winning a victory. It is very important to understand that there is a fight going on in the United States about what America is. And either side could win that for quite some time. And I want to talk about Des's point. Race has a lot to do with it, but not in some totalizing, essentialist, never-changing way. And there's a too much stuff. I'm not talking about you, but I am talking about some other people I won't name who, 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 who talk about it that way. It's brown-skinned immigrants that are the spark that's causing a lot of this. So race is important. Of course it is. It's not coincidental that Donald Trump is going after every brown-skinned group he can get a hand, his hands on. He's trying to play African-Americans against Hispanics to some degree. 
And he's not entirely wrong that everything he's done has been bad for African Americans <coughs> economically. I mean, I don't want to get run out of the room here, but uh, you're going to see going into 2016, if he survives, you're going to see an effort to play black versus brown politics on an, an increasing degree, and also brown versus brown, because he's playing to older immigrants against newer immigrants in the United States, which is an old theme, and it always works. It always works to some degree. Um, so uh, I do think we need to make some interaction effects here. That would be the statistical way to put this. Uh, it's not just some undying hatred of blacks. Now, the way in which black re resentment against blacks played into this election is quite precise, I think. The Black Lives Matter movement, which was widespread and given a great deal of fuel by the actual atrocities committed again and again by local police forces in the United States, that mobilized in the latter part of Obama's presidency. And I think as people understand, many of those militants felt Obama was not doing enough. Obama was cautious about doing too much on race because he always understood the tinderbox. I think any black politician does. Um, but he finally did speak out on the Trayvon Martin case and on some others. Then that awful thing happened in Houston. Um, People should not underestimate how threatened police forces in the United States felt. White police especially, but also, I'm sorry, Des, black police as well, who are, some of them, members of the Fraternal Order of Police. How threatened they felt by the highlighting of the atrocities. And here's where American federalism comes in in a different way. The atrocities are committed at local levels by local police forces backed by DAs who are often locally elected and, and sometimes funded by the very criminal you know, indictments they bring. Uh, national politicians like Obama or Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election don't have very many levers for doing anything very quickly or easily about locally run police forces, but they sure get the blowback. And Donald Trump recognized that as one more thing he could play on. So I've got a book coming out, I'm gonna push it. My colleagues and I are publishing a book at the turn of the year, Oxford University Press, it's called Upending American Politics. It's an edited collection, but it really isn't because it's students and colleagues of mine and me writing tightly integrated analyses. They're all empirical. They're all based on organizational and network research. Some of them are statistical. Some of them are field work and interview based. They're both national and state focused. One of the chapters in there outlines the argument I made today, the dual roots of Republican radicalism. Another one is Michael Zurub's and my piece on the popular organizational networks behind Trump's victory. And those networks were gun networks, Christian right networks, and police and other order professional networks. And he was able to do the statistical analysis I described on the white police networks. It was a perfect moment for that law and order and appeal to police kind of argument. 
because they were totally freaked out by the national attention that was going to police violence against black people. And I'm not justifying it. Please understand, I'm telling you how they look at it. They see themselves as working every day in situations of extreme disorder and violence. America is a violent society. They're scared half the time. That police officer who just shot that woman in Houston, that's an outrage. It was a rookie police officer who thought they saw a problem. Now, would that have happened in a white neighborhood? Almost certainly not. So race is very much a part of it. But the police think we are the good guys. And a lot of black police think that too. And we're being criticized by that awful Hillary Clinton and that awful Barack Obama. And Trump understood he could take advantage of that status fear, of that moral terror, um, in a situation where no Democratic politician could actually come up with an answer very easily. Because the answers depend on electing new district attorneys and new police chiefs and new mayors in thousands of localities. Um, that's not a minor factor in American politics. It's going to be an important factor for some time to come because there are no easy policy solutions. It is highly racialized, but it's not just blacks. It's also brown people. And um, there are some blacks and browns on the other side. So I'm just arguing to kind of take these broad categories and our findings about them and our findings about the psychology of these categories and bring them down to the level of actual places, actual networks, and specific understandings that people have. I'm not saying racism isn't central to American society and politics. I'd be a fool to say that. I'm just saying how it works changes over time. And I will insist on the core finding of my research about the resistance. Uh, which I think you can all read. There's an article that's just come out in Mobilization Journal that reports in great detail the findings about these women-led resistance groups across the United States, right down to maps showing how widely organized they are and an analysis of how they interact with, with the Democratic Party in various places, comparison to the Tea Party. They are led by white women. That does not mean they exclude people of color or men. They don't. But you're not going to change America without a lot of white citizens standing up because it's a majority white country. And what's going on right now is a fight among white people as well as a fight between races about whether the United States is a forward-looking, immigrant-welcoming, innovative, and confident country prepared to work with other nations on issues like global warming, or I would argue to the detriment of us all, if it's going to turn into a fearful, angry, violent, inward-looking border crossing drawing. So on that somewhat hopeful... <laughs> and it isn't decided yet. <laughs> uh, Theta, I want to thank you for just yeah. a terrific presentation, and you just covered so much ground. It's great to have you here. Thanks for joining us.
Peter Scotchpole is the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Professor Scotchpole is also the director of the Scholars Strategy Network, a nationwide U.S. organization with more than a thousand members that makes the work of university researchers understandable to civic groups, policymakers, and the media. Check out this feed for a one-on-one interview with Professor Scotchpole, where she talks about the Republican Party, Trump, and impeachment. This podcast was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman, and was supported by the Phelan family. To listen to our other event recordings and episodes of our regular podcast, The Ballpark, just enter LSE US Center into your search engine of choice. We'd love to hear what you think about the US Center and our events. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.